Phoenix Tales is a community celebrating everyday women overcoming extraordinary challenges in their lives, discovering the fire within and like the phoenix enduring the ashes to rise again. Each of you has a phoenix tale or a phoenix moment. As we create this community of women with grace and grit, share your own phoenix tale or your own phoenix moment on our website. We're honored to hear another story to welcome another phoenix. Today's guest, Yanti Amos, faced two life-altering challenges, a failed marriage and serious physical injuries from a polo accident. These two events created an existential crisis that propelled her to leave the law behind, finding her true love and settling in New York City, and more importantly, finding her real purpose as a yoga teacher and wellness leader. Hear how each of these changes continue to help her define and connect to her true essence. Please welcome Yanti Amos. I basically asked one question just to get our conversation mm-hmm. going. And the question that I ask is, was there an event in your life, either personally or professionally, that was challenging that might have directed or redirected the course of your own life? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. If I look back on my early yoga life, the big transition, or uh, I call it my existential crisis, and I had several crises uh, during that period because uh, you may know about this story, which is that I had a uh, bad polo accident and I was recommended to do rehab. And one of the things recommended was, was to do yoga. And I'd always looked at yoga as being such a a kind of activity or sport or quotation marks, an activity that um, wasn't really like any other cardiovascular sport or movement-based uh, activities that I'd ever done before. So I had zero respect for it and didn't understand the many layers that it involved. And at the same time, I was also going through a divorce and it was major, major for me. And so around about the time that I had that accident, found yoga, going through separation, subsequently leading to divorce, really made me question all facets of my of my life. So that would be one of the major turning points that led me to where I am today. How old were you when this happened? Okay, so that was 2003. So I was in my late 40s. It was a time when I wasn't that young but I wasn't old either. I mean, I, <laughs> right. I, I could pivot, you know, if, if you want to put it that way. I could absolutely, I had uh, choices and I could go on to do university degrees or whatever else I wanted to do in order to fine tune and hone and polish those passion, if you like, areas that I, I knew I was good at aside from practicing the law because at the time I was a practicing lawyer I really questioned as to whether that was my true purpose and whether it's something I wanted to do as a long-term career. And having spent 17 years practicing, I felt that it was time to to change. When, yeah, I I took uh, my yoga seriously. So was that Um, a, a very scary transition, leaving a career that you built, obviously, over a long period of time and stepping into such an unknown? Well, it was and it wasn't. It was 
one of those things because of the accident and going deep into the practice because I grew to really love and understand yoga on not just a physical level, but I saw it as a so-called spiritual awakening. For so I know it sounds very cliche, but it was interesting because I understood and loved the yoga not just for the physical benefits that I experienced, but also the the Sanskrit. I loved the chanting. I was good at it. I remembered long, long passages from the ancient scriptures, and I didn't really know why, but I felt like a there was some kind of message that was drawing me into it deeper and deeper, and I therefore wanted to study it in a more profound way. So there was there were lots of little signals there that made me feel so at home that it was something I did want to explore, uh, you know, an academic's intellectual level, and not just embody it in a daily practice. So I felt like it was a sanctuary, but it was so much more than that. And as you understand, you know, it really is everything. It's just so substantive and profound if you want to take it that direction. But it can also, you know, be as superficial or as um, sport-oriented as you want to make it. But I happen to see so much more in it, and uh, I took it in that direction. How deeply into your recuperation did you make that pivot? I can't imagine that that pivot happened overnight, but what was sort of the process for you to go from obviously going through an incredibly challenging time with divorce and Mm -hmm. also physical trauma to Mm -hmm. finding a career and path into yoga professionally? Yeah, it was a little flag that happened in 2003, and I didn't ultimately make the change and the transition in terms of a career change and choice until 2008. It was incubating, if you like, and it was something that I knew I wanted to take deeper. I'm not one of these impulsive types. I really sort of stick with something, and I had to make sure, for example, when I wanted to move from the law, I'd I didn't actually make plans for a change until 2007, 2008. So I just continued to deepen my practice, but knew that ultimately that was going to be my fantasy slash dream job, but I didn't know what form it would take. And uh, fast forward slightly, I was given the opportunity to take over a, a physical space in New York City after I met Richard. I met Richard in 2005 and we decided that I didn't want to do the bar exam in New York City. So, (laughs) so, yeah, it was very clear to me that that was the last thing on my mind and the last thing that I would wanted to do. So uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And so we made moves to take over this yoga space in the, this is the old location in East 63rd. Yeah, I started uh, an entrepreneur and a small business owner, which was something very, very strange to me. And I had to learn on the job. And it was something I never regretted because I was excited by being in New York. I was excited by a new marriage relationship, knowing that Richard was my so-called true love and real soulmate. And so everything about moving to New York City and starting this this job uh, or this new project, this new entrepreneurial venture was positive and exciting and just thrilling. And it was everything that uh, I could have hoped, sort of everything gelled and everything fell into place. So it was an exciting transition, one that I had prepared for. So you started this business without 
ever having owned or run a small business. Can you share some of the hard and fast lessons you learned on the job, things that you won't ever forget? (laughs) Oh, gosh. Well, I think one of the major things that I learned and that I really give thanks to New York for teaching me is that New Yorkers are self-entitled, self-righteous. They really know their minds and they will tell you a lot of unsolicited advice. And so as (laughs) someone someone who thought that she knew what she needed to know about running a business, all of that I had to throw out the window really because I was so accustomed to being in an organizational setting which is sort of medium, large scale. And I really had to reduce my uh, environment and expectations of what I was going to make of this business. I had to really humble myself because I was so used to big budgets. I was so used to having all the uh, expense accounts and all that sort of lifestyle associated with the professional job. I had to really make it very much a... uh, a step back and the humbling experience of just taking on the device, taking on input and comments from the community. That was a very different switch in mentality, if that makes sense. So I was really grateful for the uh, in-your-face reaction from the yoga community because they were very forthcoming in their thoughts and opinions and ideas and it was pretty hilarious looking back at it. I used to do, obviously, a lot of listening to clients, but you have a facade and a mask on when you're in a profession like the law and you're playing a role. Whereas in yoga, in the yoga world, in the wellness world, I feel like everybody loves the realness and the vulnerability of someone fresh in the sector. And uh, and I think this idea of just learning from anyone, whatever their age and whatever their background, that was an equalizer and it was just really refreshing. I actually I basked in it and I really enjoyed it. So it was uh, a shock, but at the same time, it was like, I really like this. You know, it was a nice transition to being able to be you and being appreciated for being authentically yourself. And it's okay to uh, admit to not knowing certain things. That was the realness of New York City. Even though most people who discover, I guess, as we say in our world, in our yoga world, finding their dharma, their life's path. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that path can still be strewn with challenges. Sure. So were there any moments during this process of transitioning from incredibly successful professional career, leaving behind a marriage, leaving behind different Mm -hmm. continents, and starting afresh in something so different? And also, as you said, the scale of which was very different from what you were used to. Were Mm -hmm. there ever moments where you just thought, maybe I've made a mistake or, oh, I don't know if this is really going to work out. Uh, I think we all go through second-guessing ourselves and we all wonder whether life would be better in the previous job or whether choices you've made could have been made differently. I think that's a human thing. And I think we all go through struggles and obstacles and challenges. And I think owning and running and managing operating a yoga studio taught me was that the struggles were to be embraced and really to reframe those struggles into what makes you stronger. So sure, there were many, many instances. It may sound petty to recount them, but you know, when clients were upset or teachers misunderstood you or you'd have these issues with 
the employees and you'd have massive arguments in the reception (laughs) where people would complain about a teacher who was perfectly great teacher, but that because of the neuroses of a lot of New Yorkers, they would start complaining about the teacher whose class they just took in front of 20, 25 people in the reception, which was busy and, and hustling and bustling and all. You've got the next round of students coming into the following class. And, you know, you think it's the end of the world because someone complains and does so quite vocally. That happened many a time that I learned with experience to stand up and to defend your teachers in front of those students and to call it out if someone was being disrespectful and behaving inappropriately was really the right thing to do. So I became quite uh, practiced at that. And to really stand in your in your power is not the right expression, but to really stand up where you see wrongs being committed and right in front of your eyes <laughs> in real time, <laughs> if you like. And so just uh, expressing what you need to express in order to keep the, the business not just afloat, but to keep the personal, the branding and the name and the reputation and everything intact. Those sorts of instances, which can be quite public and can be quite affronting and off-putting. And sometimes you have the situation where you just don't know what to say. In the early days, I didn't. But I learned, as I said, over time that uh, you get clever very quickly with the New Yorkers and you sort of sort the um, people who know what they're saying and the the people with high integrity and those that are giving comments from sincerity and those that are not. Because you do definitely get people who just want to critique a teacher because they have petty jealousies or petty resentments. And so that sort of thing comes to the fore. And, you know, I've always said to my sisters and friends, I, one day I need to write a screenplay or write something <laughs> funny about the yoga world and in yeah. the old days pre-COVID because yeah. there are some crazy stories about yoga studios and teachers and students that are overheard in the change rooms and also people coming in and out of classes. And in many cases, if you're not going to cry about it, you're definitely going to laugh about it because uh, it's just in some cases really, really ridiculous. But the other stuff, the struggles of just whether the business itself was the right thing for me to have done. I don't, didn't ever really feel that that uh, came to the fore for me because I, I was just getting so much out of the practice itself. I really loved the mentoring side of, of having 20 or so teachers plus a substitute teacher list that I called upon. And I just loved that side of it too. The mentorship, you know, I always say that I was as much mentored by the teachers as I mentored them. It was a very much a two-way street. That's something I've carried over to the karate mentoring I do today, for example. The two really feed into each other. And, and I feel that uh, that was all really something that began with the yoga studio experience as a manager and as a owner-operator. So... I don't know. Does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah. No. And yeah. then I guess the other part of that is you were obviously in middle age and mm-hmm. making that kind of transition. What I've noticed as I age is that you yeah. become acutely aware of time, right? And you don't sure. want to waste time. So mm-hmm. I guess from that context, was there ever a moment where you thought, ah, you know what? I could probably spend whatever remaining days I have left 
better spent or doing something else. And perhaps this was not the turn in the road that I should have taken. Well, the thing that after about nine years of running the show, running the studio, I really felt like I wanted the freedom to be able to travel more because what was happening was I was getting invitations to teach abroad and to do seminars and and to accompany Richard in Europe and beyond and to teach not just the karate, but also the yoga, because what was happening in Richard's karate group was that I was being asked to introduce the yoga practice to karate students who saw yoga as a therapeutic complement to their karate training. That was a big thing that was being introduced in, it was about 2016 is when that really began in full force. And so I wanted to begin the traveling with Richard Moore. I was seeing him less because he was doing a lot of seminars overseas and we wanted to be spending more time together. So you could say that if there was one aspect of the yoga studio owner lifestyle is that you are fully committed to the time you spend at the physical location, so at the studio, because it's very much your baby and it is very much associated with your management style. People want to see you. People want to ask you questions. They want to give you suggestions and they really just love the space and they love the uh, personal contact with you. So I was very much part of the furniture in not a bad way, but at the end there, wanted to transition into more travel to be able to fulfill that side of my uh, teaching potential, if you like, was mm. getting to that point. So I think the timing was right when I did sell in 2019. So it was a, uh, it came at, a, at the right juncture and I felt that I was ready to release and let go and to do other things abroad. So it was actually good timing. And then, of Can course, you, nobody could have guessed, but right. then COVID happened. <laughs> so right. like, Can you tell the audience about the mm-hmm. karate and what it is that you guys, what lineage and For sure. sort of that background? Because I don't know if people are quite aware. So Richard practices and teaches a traditional form of karate called Shotokan, which is actually it, it's Japanese. It's one of about four different styles that's recognized in Japan. and he himself spent over a decade in Japan studying with senior level, master level instructors, some of whom have sadly passed away. But he's carrying on a lineage and a tradition which is very unique. And he's one of only a handful of European non-Japanese who have gone through the strict training under, at the time it was run by the JKA, which is the Japan Karate Association, and um, is one of the premier, one of the foremost organizations in Japan. And he was one of the uh, few non-Japanese who have been through that traditional system of training to be a traditional instructor. And so that's our lineage, and that's the style of karate that we do today. So when did you start practicing Shotokan? When I uh, was a teenager, I studied Taekwondo and that was pretty continuous through my university years. And as a lawyer, I still 
continue to train Taekwondo, which is, as you know, Korean. <laughs> right. But then it was about early 2000. So 2002, I began the Japanese style. That's when I shifted. And I regard the, the traditional Korean training that I had very early on as a very sound foundational basis for what I do today. So uh, being in the wellness fitness industry and coming into that profession at a later age in life, how was that for you from sort of an emotional standpoint, being in the room with people that were probably younger than you nine times out of 10 having mm-hmm. eyes fixated on the way you look physically, right? In terms mm-hmm. of your own body. Like, how did you deal with that and the reality of, you know, you are a certain age and your body mm-hmm. does what it does at that point in life? Mm-hmm. I mean, granted, you're in amazing shape compared to anybody's age, but just kind of the reality of for women as we start to age and notice how our bodies change, how did you deal with Mm -hmm. the the realities of being in a world where it's all about our bodies? Well, I think we have an obligation as older women and as women who have been injured and who've gone through the various phases of our lives. And by that, I mean not just relationship, business, and so on, but also the physical phases of our lives. I feel that I have an obligation to share with my students that they must make modifications. Right. <laughs> and, you know, every single day is going to be a different day in your body. And, that, and I think it was very early on one of the hallmarks, if you like, of the way I teach that I very much wanted to convey that we must do what's right for the body and we mustn't try to adhere to unrealistic ideals of not only how we look, but also as we move through the practice, that we're not going to force ourselves to get into pretzel shapes if our bodies are just not built that way. And so this is something I always do to this day, that I'll always offer modifications and ask at the beginning of class for each one of the students to check in with how they're feeling emotionally, you know, mentally and also physically and not to to feel obliged to meet these crazy, uh, unrealistic and frankly silly expectations just because they look around the room. This is pre-COVID, obviously. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you're looking around the room and then you you see the people in the front row and they're all, you know, they're moving in this sort of, egotistical show-offy way and it's crazy but in that context people want to keep up they'll even despite themselves they will want to just swept up by this I won't call it frenzy but it's it's a very interesting group think well, I always remind them that yoga is not competitive it's not a sport right yeah right but, the- yeah no, no, absolutely. I totally agree with you. And that's a lovely thing to say to remind people, but uh, they do need reminding. That's the thing. <laughs> right, right. That's because especially thing. in the context of New York City, where everybody's, well, not everybody, but many people are oh, type yes. A and they're there for a reason. They're in New York City to make it. And so by God, they will, <laughs> they will get that headstand and they will get that pretzel shape uh, if it kills them because they are by nature striving and ambitious and type A. So our job, I believe, is to get them out of that that sense of competition and just really tap into what's going on internally and to listen 
to learn to actively listen to themselves and to go inward. And that's the challenge in and of itself. And so if they've learned how to breathe, then that's, I would say that's an enormous cue (laughs) in any class, right? Right. I mean, because I know we're all human. And even though the very same things that you've talked about in terms of setting expectations or managing expectations in a room Mm. and holding that space, right? That even with all of that self-awareness and knowledge, Mm. we still have moments as teachers and as women, we still have Mm -hmm. moments of self-doubt within our own bodies. How do you Mm -hmm. confront those moments when you face them yourself? You know, you're moving, you see yourself and you think, oh, I could look different or I did look different. You know, we have those moments where Mm -hmm. it's like Mm -hmm. we have to kind of confront our own inner critic. Um, Oh, yeah. And so how do you deal with that when you find yourself in those moments? You go through those moments all the time. I think you have these ideals of what you'd like your practice to be. And it may or may not be the case that you've, you're able to meet those ideals in any given practice. I've learned over the years, though, that, okay, today I'm not going to go upside down or today I'm going to be really on the flexibility or just opening up aspect range of motion side of my practice and not about the uh, full amplitude of every single posture. I'm going through it in a very gentle, soft way. I take it day by day, but I learned to not give myself grief over not fulfilling certain models. I used to be like that. Actually, deeper into that more so in the past few years because the competitive side of me pushes me to have achieved certain postures. And then just through injury and just through going inwards and seeing the benefits of COVID, for example, and when I say going inwards during COVID, I mean, it was a much deeper practice for me over lockdown in the UK. We we went through three full lockdowns and it was strange and curious to me because I was able to go into my Svajaya, which is a reflection and aspect of our practice more deeply than I've ever experienced. And so I put aside all those the competitive side of my practice. And I just have these little daily chickens and I'm not pushing myself to be everything. I used to. I used to be that way and not just in the yoga practice, but in all other aspects of my life. And I knew that that was not good long-term strategy. (laughs) Yeah, right. And so that's kind of the irony, right? That as we get Mm. older, we become more accepting. More, much more accepting. Right. But at the same time, it's also when we can start to see the physical changes that we Mm -hmm. have no control over. How do you balance that? I'm asking just because I'm personally going through menopause and Mm -hmm. that was a mind shift. So I was Mm -hmm. just curious as to how you deal with, you know, we do become a lot more accepting, but at the same Mm -hmm. time, the reality is that we're getting older and they're just the physical realities of that are hard to ignore. I get a lot of questions actually from my students who are going through the same thing. And we basically talk a lot about this with not just the yoga friends and students, but also with the karate women who are going through uh, their 50s menopause and Some of them are also in their 60s. It's 
when they're seeing their children leave home, but also move on to professional careers and other creative careers. There's a lot that's happening in the home. There's a lot that's happening emotionally and psychologically. And we also see that these changes are happening in our bodies. So the question you asked was, how do I cope with it? I have actually quite recently just tasked myself with getting to know my body better. So what I have done is just a whole bunch of blood tests, a whole lot of intolerance tests and checking out my allergies. And I knew something was up with my body over the past, I guess, over COVID. I knew that things were changing in my body and I wanted to get to the bottom of it. So I went into London and did a whole round of tests and I knew that type 2 diabetes is an issue with me. So I regulate it by diet and nutrition and I'm very aware of how my body functions. And I just found out I had a whole lot of food intolerances because I was wondering why my body felt like it had a big wet towel around the waist. <laughs> so I, was, I had said to myself, okay, maybe this is just normal. Maybe I'm just going to accept this. And it is partly something I have to accept, but there's also a lot that I've just tried to explore about my own health and my mental well-being. I'm working on a, a lot of those fronts in order to know that I'm doing the best thing for not just myself, but I can use all of this learning to share with my community. And we just have these nice Zoom calls with the, our karate women and with my yoga students. And we share. And it's a So we awesome. are getting to the end. So if you could yeah. find one song that would kind of resonate with your life or perhaps even tell the story of your life, what would that song be? Well, there's not just one song, but I have to say that Recently, I've been watching this incredible young singer called Angelina Jordan. She's mm. from Norway. She sings a version of I Put a Spell on You, jazz version. The version I watched was when she was 11. But what maturity and what soul and what emotion she put into that version. The song represents that I've learned as much from my young students and from my younger friends and my younger teachers who were part of the Earth Yoga tribe as from the older teachers. So I feel like there's such an exchange going on and a beautiful sort of yin-yang give and take. You know, I feel like there's just a lovely exchange that exists and I thrive on that because I'm not resentful that I'm my age. I'm really happy that I'm the age I am. I feel like I'm the most confident I've been in my entire life. So I feel like I don't want to ever go back. But I also feel that I'm enjoying vicariously the excitement and adventure and the curiosity and the passion for life that my younger friends are experiencing. And that's what this song says to me when I listen to it. Thank you so much. That's a great place to end. I think you're so inspiring and you've always been one of my mentors. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So, and that will tell the story of just your own personal resilience and also your 
it, hopefulness is not the right word, but I think your optimism, mm-hmm. that's the one thing I always get from you is your sense of optimism that seems to be the undercurrent for everything that you do in your life and even the challenges and the decisions that you make. So I really appreciate that. So oh. thank you for doing this. Oh, thank you. That was so much fun. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Phoenix Tales, a show about women overcoming challenges and like the Phoenix to be reborn, their lives reimagined. Make sure to tune in to our next episode to hear another inspired story. I am Yuliana Kim Grant. The show is edited by Podigy. Music is by Ryan Pruitt. It's like a dream, so let me never wake up. I was so hung up on myself, just like a stick in the mud. A little time, a little patience when I got tired of waiting. Then I found that gem within me sticking out of the mud. And they gon' ask me why I do it, I'ma say this because. We gon' be the best on earth, just like we be out in rust. Pass behind me like a book bag, hanging down a coat rack. Focused on the future, not that coulda, shoulda, would have. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave your comments on the platform where you get your podcasts. If you think you have a Phoenix tale, please send us a note on our Instagram and Facebook pages. If you just want to stay connected to Phoenix Tales, once again, you can go on to our Instagram and Facebook pages to get all the latest updates.